Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. And let's, uh, let's pray this evening. Dear God in heaven, we are thankful to gather together again. Thank you for your word, for your, your goodness to us and, and communicating to us. And we pray that you would even show us through this, uh, this chapter in your word um, new things, helpful things, um, and shape us in our, in our walk and in our obedience to you through it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you could call this, I suppose, uh, part two of last week's. You, you could. It's, it's very common to link uh, Joshua chapter 7 and Joshua chapter 8 together, not just because the two numbers go right next to each other, uh, but actually the themes are very uh, parallel to one another. If Joshua 7 was about the trouble of hidden sin, Joshua chapter 8 could be the effectiveness, the victory uh, that comes in your life when you deal with sin. That's what we see tonight. We see the effectiveness and victory. This could be easily a, a part two of last week's message. But you could also say that Joshua 7 is a part two of Joshua 3 through 6. So you see where this is going really quick. Uh, Joshua 6 is all about the power of God at war against his enemies. Remember how the walls of Jericho uh, fell down before his enemies. But then Joshua 7 is all about the power of God against his own people and their sin. So those two chapters work really well together. But you could also say that uh, chapter 6 is actually a part 2 of chapter 3 through 5, if you think about it, because chapter 3 through 5 is, is all about the foundation of all of that. It's all founded in the priority of worship. So you could say all of this is flowing out of a right priority of God. And um, actually, our passage tonight, kind of reflects back on all of the chapters we've been in, so it's helpful to think about this. We, we, should, we should look at this as, what should we do when we know the power of God, the, the purity of God, the priority that God wants to be in our life? How should we live? What are the outcomes going to look like in our life knowing these things? Israel, knowing their God, has brought them across the Jordan. Knowing their God has brought down the walls of Jericho. Knowing that their God is a holy God, a pure God, a God who demands priorities in your heart. How do you live? Well, this passage tonight talks about this. This is, this is what, what people do, how people live knowing a God like that. We're going to just kind of, kind of, just kind of walk through the story, and then after that we're going to draw out some lessons. So that's, that's going to be kind of our order of events tonight. We're just going to walk through the story, Joshua chapter 8, and then we're going to draw out some lessons and some conclusions. So we're going to follow like a basic storyline. We're just going to follow scene by scene that I've that I've chosen. So we're going we're gonna to start with scene one, and I'm going to call this scene God's assurance and direction. Scene one, God's assurance and direction. And this is Joshua 8, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to I. See, I have given it into your hand. Uh, sorry, I have given into your hand the king of I, his people, his city, and his land. So you shall do to I and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. Uh, notice, first off, what does God do? What is the need? The need is for God's assurance. 
God's assurance. And this makes sense to us because Joshua 7 was all about God angry at his people for sin. What God's people need is his assurance that he's on their side. And so God, in his kindness and in his grace, he assures them. As a matter of fact, notice the language is very similar to what he said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, right? Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I am with you. I will be with you wherever you go. And notice how does God give assurance to his people? He does it in two ways. First off, he gives them theology. Notice, he says, I am going to give into your hand the king of I. I'm going to give into your hand. That shows that God has power, authority, sovereignty over this king. Just like he had power and authority and sovereignty over the king of Jericho, right? It sounds a lot like Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it, right? The whole earth is the Lord's. Everyone who dwells in the Lord's, uh, in the earth belongs to the Lord. And he can give someone to another. He can give a piece of land to a group of people because the whole earth belongs to him. Why? Verse 2 of Psalm 24 tells us, because he made the earth. The Lord has sovereignty over all. And this is the assurance that um, God gives to Joshua right off the bat. I am going to give you the king and all of his land. And, and notice that there's, there's, a, there's a clarification, though, too. He says, you're going to do to I, just like you did to Jericho, only or except you are going to be able to plunder. You're going to fully be able to plunder the cattle and all the spoil of the city. So this is different. This is looking a lot more like the regular conquest will except we'll see it's a little bit like it's a little bit more like jericho than the regular conquest will look it's going to be total destruction of the city and they're just going to be able to spoil um, from the cattle and from other things in the city so god gives theology but he also gives them a strategy look at here he says set an ambush for the city behind it god even says here is your wisdom set an ambush now a few questions before we jump to our next scene really quick. Why does God not give I just like he gave Jericho? He said, I'm going to give you I, the city, and all of its inhabitants, just like I did to Jericho. Why, why involve strategy now, God? Why don't you just make the walls fall down like you did before? Right? Also... Oh, what exactly is God wanting to accomplish in his people by pursuing this specific strategy? That's, that's going to be some questions we're going to look at tonight. But let's, for now, move on to scene two. Scene number two, Joshua's, you could call this Joshua's careful and humble planning. Joshua's careful and humble planning. This is going to take us through verse eight. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. And he commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will come near the city. And it will be that when they come out to meet us, as at the first, we will flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at first. And we, uh, we will flee before them. And you shall arise from your ambush and take possession of the city. For Yahweh your God will give it into your hand. 
then it will be that when you have seized the city, that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of Yahweh. See, I have commanded you. This is uh, Joshua's careful and humble planning. Just, just notice first off, just notice Joshua's careful planning. Look at all the, the work he puts into planning. Look at all the strategy he puts into planning. He's putting a lot of thought into this. And uh, if, if the location of I is known, and there is, of course, question on where I is, um, the, the best location that I have seen arguments for is this one location, and, and the, the, the hill where it is thought that I sat was right um, on, a, on a valley that was going up from the Jordan River towards the highlands of Judah. And actually, this, this, this was a main way into the highlands of the, the land of Canaan, you could say like that. And so this, some, uh, this was a way that Israel had to go through. Um, and actually, the, the city of Ai itself was kind of situated a little bit off the way, a little bit to the south of this main route, this main kind of canyon going up, wide canyon, you could say. Um, and it would be looking over the road going into the highlands of Canaan to the north. The, the, the gate of the city was on the northern side of the city, and they would be looking. And, and behind them would be hills and things like that. And then there would also be a really deep canyon. So you can see where this ambush troop, uh, uh, these troops could come up through the south and sneak around. There was a very wide canyon behind this location, and they could, they could easily sneak up on the city of Ai. The city of Ai could see very clearly the plain that was in front of them, coming up from the Jordan Valley, but they couldn't see anything to the south of them or to the west of them because that's where the, the big valley was. So that, that could be the location. It, it could be. Um, I, of course, was very small, maybe about three acres. Jericho was seven acres, and that wasn't very big at all. So this was a very small place, as we saw in Joshua 7, verse 3. Right, It's a very small place, doesn't require much. But, but notice all of Joshua's careful planning. Even though this is a small location, a technically a seeming easy target, he sends 30,000 troops alone to the ambush. That's a lot of soldiers. Matter of fact, some people wonder if this is really the real number because that's a lot of troops to conceal for the amount of time that they need to be concealed. Uh, but it should be pointed out that 30,000 is exactly uh, 10 times the amount that they sent on the first time they came to I. And you know what happened with 3,000. So maybe 30,000 is significant. But notice here, despite all God's promises, Joshua is working really hard. Joshua is taking no chances. Even with his ambush force, he's like going above and beyond. Overkill. That's what he is doing. And, and there's a bit of a question that comes into my mind as I read this. Do God's promises really matter that much to Joshua? He's not, is, is he really believing that God is going to give him this city? He's working really hard. He's making a lot of plans. He's thinking through it. He's, he's, he's giving more than enough attention to this fight. Um, another note here, the, the idea of ambushing actually is very, um, it's very similar to the typical way people fought battles like this. Usually, you wouldn't send an army just headfirst into a wall. That was a great way to kill an army. So usually espionage, sneaking, ambushing, surprise attacks, that's what you did in the ancient world. Matter of fact, there's this account in uh, Judges uh, chapter 20 where um, uh, 400,000 Israelites 
are going against 26 uh, Benjamites. Uh, they're also Israelites, by the way. It was a bad time in the days of Judges. Uh, they're going against 26,000 Israelites with 400,000 Israelites, and they're attacking this city, and they lose They lose about 40,000 men over the first two days until they finally decide to do an ambush. So, so attacking a wall head-on was actually a very bad strategy, unless you wanted to lose all of your soldiers. So actually, you've you, you got to see this. Joshua is employing common uh, strategy techniques for his day in conquering the city of Ai. That's Joshua's careful planning. But I want you also to notice Joshua's humble planning. He is depending, actually, on God's plan. He is depending on God's power. He may have the enemy completely outnumbered, but notice this. He speaks with confidence in the way the battle is going to go only because of the Lord's promises. He has the enemy vastly outnumbered. He's got great positioning, and he speaks with confidence, though, only because he knows that the Lord God is with him. Look what it says in verse 7. You shall arise, you know, from your ambush and take possession of the city, for Yahweh, your God, will give it into your hand. He is counting on God's help, and yet, at the same time, he is working really hard. He is planning with great diligence. Notice that tension? He has tremendous theology, and he's working really hard. What's going on here? What kind of energy, enthusiasm, diligence would you put to a battle if you knew what the outcome was? God has told him what the outcome is. I'm going to give you I. And notice he's putting so much work into it. That's curious. Let's move to scene number three. We're going to call this scene Joshua's Bold Battlefield Moves. Um, Joshua's Bold Battlefield Moves. Um, chapter 8, verse 9. So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between uh, Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people. And he went up with the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. Um, Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and then sent them in an ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So uh, they set the people... Uh, so, so they set uh, set so they set the people all the army that was on the north side of the city and its rear guard on the west side of the city and Joshua went up that night into the midst of the valley. Notice the battle is slowly progressing forward and forward. And once again, here's our old friend, the Joshua narrator. He's just taking his good old sweet time to get to it because he wants to keep you interested, keep you reading. But notice, notice a few things here. Joshua is still planning. Matter of fact, notice he adds another 5,000 men. Now, some people want to say, well, maybe that was the original ambush force, and maybe the 30,000 men was the total force with Joshua, but it just doesn't read that way. I read it like 20 times this last week and could never make it say uh, 30,000 are with Joshua and 5,000 are in the ambush. It seems to me like what he's saying here is Joshua sent 30, and then the next... The next day, he sent another 5,000. Joshua is working really hard. His, he's continuing to think about the battle, continuing to plan to prepare. And this is, uh, 
This is a good trait in a leader, right? A leader is always thinking. He's always saying, what can I do to give myself more of an advantage? There's always one more thing I can do to affect the outcome of this battle. What can I do? Joshua is continuing to plan. And notice in the end there, actually it kind of brackets the whole section. Verse 9, Joshua spent that night among the people. And then uh, Joshua, verse 13, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Those are almost parallel phrases. Notice Joshua is in this battle himself. Matter of fact, he is putting himself in the valley right in front of Ai, right where the king of Ai can see him clearly. Joshua seems to be making himself the bait in this whole operation. So this is uh, Joshua's bold battlefield moves. Let's move to our next scene. Uh, We call this AI takes the bait, or the rat takes the bait, or if you want to have a lot of fun, you know, anyway. But but anyway, scene four, I takes the bait. Uh, This is verse 14. Now it happened that when the king of I saw it, and the men of the city, uh, the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. He and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Verse 17, so not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. And they forsook the city, leaving it open, and pursued Israel. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I. Well, let's just hold off on that. That's that's getting ahead of the scene there. You can't do that. So uh, uh, notice here, just real quick, once again, appointed place, verse 14. Everything, once again, is all planned out. Joshua is planning this. There's a strategy. Um, to the last moment, he's working hard on this battle. But notice also there is this hint of theology breaking through. Joshua is working really hard and believing really hard in the Lord. But notice here the, the, the cracks of God begin to pierce through in this story. What are those cracks? Well, why is this king so blind about this ambush? Why are his eyes so fixed on the plane that is in front of him and on nothing else? And, and why does he desert Desert his city completely to chase after Joshua. Verse 17. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. They forsook the city. They left it entirely and they pursued Israel as one man. All of Ai, all of Bethel is charging after Joshua down into this valley. What is going on here? Well, reminds me of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. And, and this is a good thing to remember for all of us. God will still be your God, even if you stubbornly rebel against him and reject him. Right? That was, that was the king of Ai, right? He stubbornly rebelled and rejected God. He said, I am not going to humble my heart before this God who claims this land. But God is still his God. 
And God still controls where his eyes look. God still controls what he believes, what he, what he, what his perceptions are. And God can even harden the heart, right? God is still the God, even of the people that reject him. That's scene number four, I takes the bait. How about scene number five? And uh, to quote Admiral Akbar, here's the title. Scene number five, it's a trap. There we go. Let's read uh, verse 18. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men, uh, then the men in ambush rose quickly from their place. And when they had stretched, when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they quickly set the city on fire. Then the men of Ai turned back and looked and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky and they had no place to flee this way or that for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. Uh, But Joshua and all Israel saw the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended. So they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city to meet them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down until there was no one remaining for him who survived or escaped. But they seized the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. Now it happened that when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the fields, in the wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them fell by the edge of the sword until they were completely destroyed, then all Israel turned back to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of I. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand uh, with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted to destruction all the inhabitants of I. That's a pretty intense story. And and that's always an amazing scene. Can you imagine the terror of chasing the Israelite army down this hill, thinking you have the victory, only to realize that your city behind you, your refuge, is going up into smoke, and then to see Joshua coming back up the hill like Gandalf himself with this big, huge javelin in his hand and all of Israel after him, and then getting crushed between the two forces, one coming out of the city and one coming up against the army. This is an amazing trap. But notice the, the size comparison is shocking, too. The total population, men and women and children, it seems like, in the city of Ai was only 12,000. And Joshua had 30,000, 35,000 maybe in the ambush alone, not even counting the men that were with him coming back up towards Ai. This was a massive force smashing this little force between them. And that's interesting to me because the king, remember the king, is willing to chase down this massive force. That takes a lot of pride, a lot of confidence. But now he is smashed between them. And notice also it's very interesting, right? Joshua's javelin never comes down. He extends it throughout the entire battle. Once again, do you see that Joshua is working really hard, but at the same time he is depending completely on the Lord. Completely. And perhaps there's a reason why he's going to such dramatic lengths to, to obey the Lord and seek to honor him, right? Sometimes when, when God causes you to fall on your face 
in your sin, what happens? You'll, you'll truly see how every ability to do anything good totally comes from him. And you are eager and you're zealous to obey him and to, and to seek to honor him in all things. When you truly fall on your face, that's when you realize how dependent you are on God and his grace in all things. It's from him and through him, Paul would say in Romans 11, right? I, I can't do anything but through God. Let's move to our next scene, scene six. This is Israel's full obedience. And you see this um, from chapter 8, 27, all the way down to 29. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of the city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of Yahweh, which at which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave a command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Notice. First off, this is eyewitness testimony. It seems to suggest that. There's very vivid details. And there's also that historical point there in verse 29, to this day. But notice this. Notice all of the obedience that's, that's in these three short verses. Verse 27, they do all of this, the plundering, according to the word of the Lord, don't they? Um, verse 29, uh, they hang this king, but then they take him down before the evening. That is in obedience to Deuteronomy 21, uh, 22. And then in verse 28, the center of that sandwich sort of thing, you see that they do all this destroying according to the Lord's command in verse 2 of this chapter. This is Israel fully obedient. Once again, they're serious. They've seen how disobedience can destroy a nation. And now they're seeking to obey him and they're experiencing the joy and the victory that comes from obedience. And notice here, there's, there's, there's a bit of, of a note that could be made about the blessing and provision that God provides. Notice, God provides for his people through this. He gives them cattle and livestock, and he gives them provision as well as plunder from the people, right? Remember Achan? He couldn't wait. He couldn't wait a day. And now look at this. The people are receiving the plunder. God always provides. Your sin always lies to you, and God always provides. But there's something else here. There's another reminder of God's severity, and that is Israel's treatment of the inhabitants of Ai, and particularly their treatment of the inhabitant or of the king of Ai himself. He is hanged once again. It's according to Deuteronomy 21:22. And notice this was not something that they did to kill someone. It wasn't like hanging out west or here, I suppose you'd say. This was something they did after someone was dead. They would kill him with stoning, perhaps, and then they would hang him, and then they would take him down by evening. Why would they do this? This was to mark someone as under the judgment of God. This is someone who is cursed. Matter of fact, God frequently gives his people uh, severe pictures of what their sin does. We saw this in, in Joshua 7, didn't we? Sin is severe in its consequences, not just for you, but for everyone around you as well. And we see this also, a, a parallel um, event kind of happens to this king that happened to Achan and his family, right? He is killed, he is wiped out, and he is a symbol of what sin does. Sin crushes you. This king was rebelling against God, and now he is put up as a picture of someone under God's curse. Sin has consequences. Sin is a curse. That's kind of what this is saying. 
So here we are at the end of our passage in I. What about some lessons? What lessons can we draw from this account in Joshua chapter 8. Let me, let me just provide you with three lessons that I really want you to take home. And believe it or not, everything we've talked about is just setting us up for this. I've been racing through this account, kind of, uh, trying to get to this point because this is the best part. So if you're not taking notes, take these down, these three lessons that you can draw. Number one, God wants your industry. That's what you should take away from this passage. God wants my industry. He wants my work ethic. He wants my diligence. He wants my pain. He wants my sweat. He wants my planning even. He wants my industry. These are things that we actually do as an expression, as an act of worship to God. All of this planning and this work and we see this in Joshua, don't we? Right? He labors and he works. He plants under the conviction that God's going to give him the victory, but that still causes him to plan and labor because he knows God wants my industry. You can say it like this. God gives big promises. God promises fantastic provision for his people. Read Matthew chapter 6. God promises to provide for his people. But he almost always promises to provide for his people through their diligence. He says, if you are going to work hard, I will provide for you. He doesn't always or or really ever knock down the walls of your problems in your life. He often calls you to use wisdom and skill and preparation and diligence to accomplish the things that he calls you to do. He calls you to do that. It is rare that God knocks down the problems in your life. He chooses rather to powerfully work through your ordinary efforts. That's what God does. Matter of fact, that kind of brings some texture and some life to the the passage in Philippians 2, right? Uh, Work out your own salvations with, with fear and trembling for. It is God who works in you both to will and to work his pleasure. God works through your effort. Now, this doesn't mean your salvation is totally dependent on your works, right? It doesn't mean that at all. It means God provides his grace through our diligence. As we are diligent and work for him, that's where God's grace comes in and his provision comes in as well. God's spiritual resources come through our fighting, not through our faking. He, he gives rich resources to those that work hard and are diligent in their work. Once again, you see this with Joshua and his company. I'm fascinated by all of the work that Joshua put into this battle. He labored and he worked. But notice his even laboring and his working was an act of faith itself. He was trusting in God to fulfill his promises through this labor. God said, I'm going to give you the battle, but I'm going to give it to you this way. Follow this strategy. And that is what Joshua did. But notice, often, often in our life, it is the ordinary labor, it is the everyday efforts that God calls us to. Now, you may say, labor, work, industry, that doesn't sound spiritual at all. Well, it's it's not. It's godliness. And sometimes godliness doesn't feel very glamorous or very spiritual. Sometimes godliness is dirty and it requires a lot of work. That's what godliness often is. 
Faith, most often, I would say, is seen in the little acts of faithfulness that you pursue in your daily life. That is where faith is seen, in your everyday faithfulness, in your ordinary labor. That's what we see. That's what we see. That's what we see godliness really looks like. But just to give you a few more illustrations, what does godliness then look like in your life? Here's a list. It means you wake up in the morning. It means you go to bed at night. It means you make your bed in the morning. It means you do your chores. It means you complete all of your assignments. It means you, uh, you do your homework. It means you make goals and you try to keep them, right? It means you show up to something that you're called to show up to on time. It means you keep a job even if it's not fun. It means you sleep when other people are awake and you choose to be awake when other people want to be asleep. Uh, that's what godliness often means. It means you do a lot of ordinary things, ordinary things that aren't fun. But you do it with this conviction, with this compelling desire to please God, to honor him, trusting this is how God wants me to live in faith. I love uh, this quote by Jim Elliott. Um, I think I've known this quote by Jim Elliott my entire Christian life, and I've always thought about it. Um, He says this, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. I'm going to work the best I can in this moment that I've been given. Because this moment has been given to me by God, and I don't know how many moments I'm going to be getting, but I'm going to take this moment and live for the glory of God in it. And you could even you can say this, discontentment in your daily life, in all the grind and the, the pettiness of your daily life, discontentment might actually keep you from worship because it's through these things that God wants you to express worship and trust in Him. No, we, we should be careful to clarify something, though. Uh, work, diligence, industry doesn't automatically mean godliness. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that this is how God often chooses to provide for his people. But I would say this also under a caveat. Industry uh, must be done in a certain manner. Diligence must be done in a certain manner. Hard work must be done in such a manner if you want it to give glory to God. What is that manner? That leads to our, the next thing, the next lesson I want to point out. God not only wants your industry, God wants your humility. God wants your humility. What is your perception in all of your industry, in all of your work? Even the greatest works or the greatest wisdom without God is emptiness before God is weakness in God's mind. The greatest works, the greatest wisdom, are nothing to God and in God's mind. What do we learn from Joshua and Israel? Notice this. They can't do anything. Even take out a small fortress like I without God's help. Uh, They can't even do the smallest, the simplest part of this whole conquest, apart from God. That is their conviction. Uh, They can plow forward with all of these troops and still say, but it's only because our God is on our side that we're able to do all of this. There is tremendous humility in all of Joshua's acting and all of his speaking, right? For Yahweh, your God, will give it into your hand. Do all this with diligence, with industry, because you know that God will provide for you through all this. But even in the smallest 
part of the conquest. I might be one of the smallest cities that they face. They are 100% totally dependent on God and his favor. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, thought about this? Uh, You need God's grace. You need God's grace for every bit of obedience he calls you to. You need God's grace for even the smallest moments of obedience that he has called you to. Or maybe you could say it like this, God's grace isn't just for the big, big issues in your life. It's also for the little things that he calls you to. And maybe, just maybe, the reason why you're not experiencing more victory in big areas is because you're not pursuing dependence on God and humility before God in the small things, the ordinary things that he calls you to. Maybe you're not saying to yourself, by God's grace, I can do this. By God's help, I can do this. Maybe you do not have humility in your heart. There's a verse in James 4. It says this, James 4.13, Come now you who say, tomorrow or today we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live (laughs) and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Notice, you are a vapor. That is the mind of a humble person. I don't know how long my life is going to last, but I do know that God has called me to today and to live it faithfully. And I'll live it faithfully by his glory and by his grace. The gospel is a crazy thing, isn't it? The gospel is a crazy thing. The people who know their God through the gospel of Jesus Christ work harder than anyone else for the glory of God. But yet the people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ at the same time depend 100% on the righteousness of Christ. They work so hard for God, and yet they are so humble before God. The gospel is a crazy thing. Let's look at our last lesson Um, God wants your industry. God wants your humility. How about this? God wants your priority. God's people are frequently getting this reminder. We already saw it in Joshua 5. And they're going to get it again here at the end of Joshua chapter 8. And that just goes to show that God's people constantly need to be reminded of God's priority and the demands of God's priority. God doesn't just want your busyness. He also wants your stillness. He also wants places in your life where you are quiet before him and you say that you are God and I am not and I'm going to obey you. This is actually brings us to a surprising scene, a surprising scene seven. You can't stop it on scene six. That's like, that's bad. I know things about numbers and six is bad. So we're going to do one more scene, scene seven, read uh, verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the sons of Israel, as is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses 
which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel, with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who, were, who had carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, the sojourner as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and the other half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had given a command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law and the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all of Moses, all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the sojourners who were going among them. This is a surprising scene and it's a jarring scene because we jump suddenly from the smoldering gates of Ai to a mountain range, two mountain ranges about 20 miles north. Suddenly the narrator just skips. He just jumps ahead. It's like, you know, you're watching your favorite sport team, you know, maybe you're a soccer kind of person. Maybe you're a baseball kind of person. Maybe you're a football kind of person and the Lord loves you more than everyone else. Amen. And you're watching, you know, the biggest game. You're watching the biggest game of the year, the Super Bowl, the World Cup, the World Series, you know, all those games. And then suddenly, in the middle of the game, it suddenly cuts away to breaking news and a man sitting, sitting. We went from running to sitting. Why are we here? That's the kind of jarring shift that we suddenly find ourselves in here at Joshua 8. Now, What's happening here is Israel is obeying the word of the Lord that he commanded them. We see this in Deuteronomy 27, 28. Um, half of Israel is to stand on one mountain, another half is to stand on another, another mountain, and they basically shout curses at each other. But it's not like that. It's, uh, it's like, cursed is the one who does not uh, keep the word, the law of God. And then the other side of the mountain says, blessed is the one who keeps the law of God. And you can read all about it in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. But this is a sign of covenant faithfulness. This is a sign of priority. This is saying, Lord, you are the most important person. And we are committing to follow you. Lord, you are the one who created the universe and you have given us this land. We need to be right before you. We don't care about anything else. You are the most important one. Now, once again, notice, just in the line of narrative, this is, this is kind of jarring and striking. This is 20 miles, if we're, if we're putting this chronologically, which some people argue, this is 20 miles north, deep into enemy territory. Suddenly, we're in enemy territory, but once again, just like we saw in Joshua 5, right? Covenant loyalty to God and having a relationship with Him that's a priority in your life is more important than safety, is more important than the next victory. Everything hinges on rightly relating to God. And that's what God wants from his people. He wants them and he wants us. And this is what he's saying through his word, right? More important than your safety, more important than anything else, is your prioritization of me in your heart. Why? Why do you cut away from the Super Bowl? Why do you cut away from the World Cup? Because something more important is happening. Being right with God, being faithful to God, being obedient to God, that is more important than anything else. Where is God in your life? Is He first? He demands. 
to be first. He demands no less. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for uh, this moment. We're able to peer into your word. We're thankful for your grace to allow us to even do this small thing. We pray that you'd give us grace also to speak truth to one another and into our own hearts from it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.